Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This fifth season of our podcast is a special deep dive into a case that we covered as it was happening, the trial of Robert Durst for the murder of his good friend and confidant, Susan Berman. In Jury Duty, the Robert Durst prosecutor speaks. We present a series of exclusive interviews with LA Deputy District Attorney John Lewin, the lead prosecutor in that trial. John takes us on his journey from the very beginning of his involvement with the case, through the trial, and through the death of Robert Durst on January 10th, 2022. In our last installment, Lewin and I concluded our conversation about the testimony of the only defense witness in this trial other than the defendant himself, memory expert Dr. Elizabeth Loftus. On today's episode, John Lewin and I begin our discussion of the testimony of the defendant, Robert Durst, specifically focusing on the direct examination of Durst by his attorney, Dick DeGarren. That's coming up right after the break. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A few quick program notes. Because the interviews had to be conducted by phone during one of John's early morning or late evening neighborhood hikes along a busy coastal road, the quality is often not optimal. We will clarify when it seems critical to understanding Lewin's narrative. Also, in the event that you would like to revisit the sections of the trial that Lewin describes in this episode, check out our coverage of the early days of Dick DeGaren's direct examination of his client Robert Durst in Season 2, Episodes 15 and 16 of this Jury Duty podcast. And if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. We pick up my conversation with John Lewin as he begins his assessment of the first day of Dick DeGaren's direct examination of his client, Robert Durst. So let's start with Dick DeGaren's direct examination of Bob. Tell me what you were looking for in Dick's direct questioning and Bob's direct testimony, and given the nature of your regard for the defense? What were your expectations of what Bob would do up on the stand? Well, obviously, his testimony came at the end of the trial, and I've been dealing with the defense for seven years, so I knew them well. Obviously, I was surprised during the trial by what appeared to be a lack of preparation and a lack of understanding of the evidence in the case. I also was aware, because I was tracking it, that they had not visited Durst at all in jail. I mean, almost, I want to say, other than Chip Lewis, who would come see him, but Chesnoff and DeGaren had visited him less than five times, and I, and I don't think at all, maybe once or twice during COVID. And so I knew, and I was wondering, how are you going to have this guy prepared for trial? Do you even understand what you're looking at? What's going to happen? So my expectations were very low, for the effectiveness of what they were going to do. And kind of as usual, they managed to fall short of even those low expectations. So what I was aware of, what they had to do, 
there are certain things I knew going in that they were stuck with. They were going to have to explain that Bob found the body. They had stipulated that he wrote the cadaver note. So that meant they were going to have to explain, A, what he was doing down in Los Angeles, why he had repeatedly lied about it, why he had perjured himself repeatedly in Galveston, and even why he had perjured himself potentially during the direct examination. This was not in advance. This was once they started. So I knew that they had to do all these things. I also knew that they had to be able to figure out and know all the lies. They had to know all the lies that Bob had basically told. Because you can't address all of the weaknesses in your case unless you're first aware of them. Now, my expectation was, and this turned out to be correct, that in essence, they would do what they did during the rest of the trial. They got a not guilty in Galveston, so they would simply apply that same playbook. What did that mean? That meant trying to get the jury to feel sorry for Bob. That meant asking questions in a way to try to humanize him. That meant focusing on the fact that he, quote, was on the spectrum, even though they hadn't called a witness. Now, in Galveston, I was aware that they were planning on calling Dr. Altshuler, who I really wanted to testify in this case. As I think we've said before, there's nothing that I wanted more than Altshuler on the stand, but he ended up having a serious stroke, which the defense didn't learn about for a year, and he wasn't able to testify. So I knew they were going to try to get all that out through Bob. That's what they did in Galveston. So that was my expectation coming in, and that's pretty much what they tried to do. So, as you say, they spent a lot of the first day trying to elicit sympathy about his hearing loss, about his being in a wheelchair, about his catheterization. And then he talked about his mother's death. Right. And I knew that that's where they were going to go the whole trial. I knew Bob was doing that the whole trial. And that's why I deliberately timed what evidence I was going to use. So, for instance, I knew that I had Bob on tape with Stuart talking about how Stuart picked up how, you know, Bob was showing the public the scar on his head from the surgery. He did the same thing in our trial, which I pointed out at the time. And it was very clear to point out to the judge, I knew the jury was going to see it. And I knew that later on in the trial, I would be putting on evidence where Bob would be admitting that, in essence, he has shaved his head in New Orleans, not Galveston, New Orleans, for the same purpose. So... I knew that's where they were going to go. They were going to try to play the sympathy angle. They were going to play the games with he's on the spectrum. It was my belief that by that time, the jury knew who he was. They did not like him. There's an important point that's really crucial to understanding Bob Durst, this trial, and even our jury, and even myself. There's a difference between being entertained by Bob Durst, recognizing his charisma, understanding that he can be very witty, there's a difference between being interested in what he has to say. There's a difference between that, laughing at the subtle sense of humor that he has. That's different than liking him, trusting him, or believing him. So when he would make his jokes, jurors would laugh, I would laugh. That played into what I wanted because I knew that if they ended up bringing in an expert, which they didn't, plus I knew we had jurors who had people in their family who were on the spectrum, that Bob's sarcasm was completely inconsistent with being on the spectrum. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. In the next part of my conversation with John Lewin, he explains his response to one of the tactics employed by Dick DeGaron during the first day of his direct examination of Robert Durst. In direct, Dick did one thing that was potentially effective. And there's one issue in this case that's not a lie, where you will feel genuine sympathy for Bob, and that is the loss of his mother. Terrible. And I knew they were going to try to use that. They used it in Galveston, and they used it in this case. Now, I was very surprised to hear Bob, number one, go through the story that he's told a dozen times about his father taking him out of bed and saying, wave to mommy, and all of a sudden, it was his grandfather. That's not a memory, let's quote the good doctor, Elizabeth Loftus, that's not a memory that should change over time. It's too significant. There's no way that you go from, oh, it was my grandfather, not my dad. That's the central part, the flashbulb part of that memory. You might forget it, but you're not going to rearrange it. So I always knew it was a lie because of what I heard from Douglas and Tom regarding the layout of the house. Douglas was old enough to understand. It also was completely inconsistent with everything I knew about Seymour. Who's going to say wave to mommy while she's up on the roof? So I was shocked when he screwed that up. I thought that his statement about it was always, you know, me and mommy, she would call her mommy, and Douglas and daddy, like he's a five-year-old. I thought that was somewhat effective, except for one little problem. As soon as I heard that they were playing Frisbee, I'm going, wait a minute. I think the Frisbee was invented in the late 50s, not 1950. And I was able to look it up while he was testifying. I mean, as soon as it came out, I heard it, knew in two seconds, that was wrong. I also, although I'd never played Uno, one of the first jobs that I had, all the nurses and the director of the unit I worked at spent a lot of their time playing Uno. That was in the early 80s. I was pretty confident that it did not exist in 1950. So I quickly Googled that, and I knew, okay, I got him. Now, one of the things that I've learned as a prosecutor is that the best thing that can happen is not when a juror listens to a witness's testimony that you think is lying. The best thing is not where they listen to it and go, oh, that person's full of shit, they're lying. The best thing that can happen is when they listen to it and they believe it. Because if you know that you have indisputable evidence, you will be able to put on later, and the jurors will know, oh, my God, he lied to me. Now it's not just you lied about the case. It's that you lied and I believed you, and jurors do not like feeling stupid and used and manipulated. So I knew as soon as he told that story, which was the one hook he had in the case, how terrible it was growing up, etc. I knew that was a lie. And the more impact and effect it had during direct, the harder the fall was going to be on cross. So I was shocked that that came out. It was also clear to me, most of the time, Dick had no idea what questions he was asking and had no idea what the answers were going to be. That was certainly surprising. One of the other things that I found very interesting 
was that Bob would also, it was clear to me, that he was answering. He knew things that he wanted to bring in. So it didn't matter what questions he was asked. He was going to answer whatever it was he wanted, something that would cross over into cross-examination. So basically, that was the situation of kind of what I took from direct. I took that in the end, they did not address the problems they had. They fell into more traps that were going to hurt them on cross. A basic thing that they needed to do. Bob needed to get up and he needed to acknowledge. And they made this mistake throughout the entire trial going back to jury selection. In jury selection, they should have gotten up and said, hey, listen, you're going to hear terrible evidence about Bob Durst's domestic violence. And it's shocking. It's going to offend you. Is there anybody here who themselves or someone close to them has been a victim of domestic violence? And you're going to see hands. And then what I would have asked is, were they killed? And 99% of the time, it's going to be no. Then you can say, so you would agree that just because, and it's terrible, I'm not accusing, but just because somebody engages in domestic violence, does everyone agree that that's extremely common across all society, from poor people to rich people, et cetera? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does everyone agree that just because somebody is a domestic violence abuser, they rarely does that result in homicide. They never covered it. They never even acknowledged that Bob was a domestic violence abuser. Instead, what they did during the trial was, at every point, Dick and Chesnoff especially, in their questions and their comments, would try to minimize what Bob had done. They were asking witnesses, well, you've seen a lot worse domestic violence than that, right, doctor? As if they are in 1950. So I expected that on direct they would finally get Bob to admit, yep, I was a horrible domestic violence abuser. Didn't happen. I also expected that they would be smart enough to understand that demeaning Kathy's accomplishments, one, it wasn't true. But even if it was true, it doesn't help your case. In fact, you've got a juror, Carmen, juror number 12, the foreman, it would turn out, who was basically Kathy. And when you are making the point that this very accomplished woman only got there because of your family's connections, despite the evidence, it makes you look terrible. It made them look terrible in this case because it was demonstrably false. But again, it was one of those moves by the defense where you're going, okay, even if this is true, how does it help you? It didn't. So like everything else in the trial, any bright object they reached for, like a little baby hold up a red ball, they reached for it. We knew that, so we gave them lots of bright objects that we wanted them to reach for, and they reached for every one of them. This continued indirect. Why do you think that he changed his story about it being his grandfather rather than his father who took him to the window? Because he doesn't. Because it's a lie. Because he doesn't remember. The right. Problem beyond that, John. Do you think that he also realized that it had been demonstrated in Douglas's testimony that his father came back after his mother had jumped? His father wasn't present when his mother jumped. Wasn't that something that Douglas testified to and that perhaps in hearing that, that prompted Bob to change his story about who took him to the window? So that's definitely possible. Now, as I sit here right now, I don't remember that testimony from Douglas. That might be true. The reason I don't remember is because I didn't care. It was absurd that 
Bob was saying, someone would have said, wave at mommy. What I do know from Doug's testimony was he was very clear, you cannot see from that window what Bob said you could see. The problem for Bob, and this came out repeatedly more on cross, but I think one of the really important questions that Bob was asked that he couldn't answer was something to the effect of, Bob, you admitted you've lied about this, this, and this. Yes. Can you tell me how is the jury supposed to be able to figure out when you're telling the truth and when you're lying? And he says, I don't know. So I wasn't worried by this point in the trial. Anything Bob said that was not demonstrably provable, independent of what he said about it, had zero value. So I don't know what made him say how much he even planned it. If you notice, what's interesting about Bob, Bob is a great storyteller. And by great storyteller, I don't mean that the stories are believable. I mean that you give Bob anything and he will lay out a detailed story. What he doesn't seem to understand is the intricacy of the details that he will get into don't help the credibility of the story. They destroy it. A perfect example was in Cross, where Bob didn't even realize that I was being sarcastic with him when he's explaining Kathy coming home. How far was she from the door? Whatever, four feet. What foot did she step in first? Uh, right foot. You know, how many feet did she walk? Uh, eight. What did she do with the coat? She put it over the couch. What percent of the coat was hanging over the couch versus on the couch? 42%. Those are very detailed memories. The problem is the detail of the memory doesn't make the memory credible because those are not what Dr. Loftus would call flashbulb memories. So in other words, what foot she entered in first is irrelevant. It's not going to be something anyone's going to remember. It was especially damning when Bob would claim a lack of memory of very significant things. The other thing, one of the other surprises that I could not believe on direct was, you know, Bob, describe a typical day that you and Kathy would have at the Kathermont. Oh, we'd go out, we'd get something to eat, you know, we'd come back, and then I would use a bow saw to cut up firewood. It was so transparent that all that was missing was Bob stopping and saying, okay, ladies and the jury, I'm about to casually mention a bow saw. An item in this case that I've got some problems with, going back to Galveston and when I'm fleeing after the murder, my arrest, etc. So I'm going to casually throw this up there as if a bow saw is the most common thing in the world, and of course I'm using it to chop firewood. It, it was so abrupt and so transparent that it did not work. The other thing on direct, which I could not believe, I was shocked. So a lot of people have, because they don't know, because they're idiots who don't try cases. But a lot of these moron commentators will say, you can't ask him, you're hypothetical of, if you killed Susie, would you tell us? That's irrelevant. Well, I can definitely ask that. And what allows me to ask it in particular are two facts of this case. The first fact is that I asked him about it in New Orleans. And he answered the question and said, no, I would lie about it for both Kathy and Susan. Because I knew the answer going in, that means I could have made an offer of proof to the judge, say, hey, judge, here's why it's relevant. He already answered it, and he has said, I'm going to perjure myself. If I had done it, I would never tell you. That's number one. Number two, which is mind-boggling to me, the defense knows this. 
So what does DeGarren do very early on? He asks Bob, did you kill Susan? Why would you ask him that? All it does is allow me to ask the question again. Even if somehow I couldn't ask the question again, I've already asked the identical question in New Orleans, and the jury's heard that he's going to lie about it. So, Carrie, can you explain to me why on earth they would ask such a question knowing what the answer is going to be? And what was your impression when you heard it? Because I was very surprised. I did not think they were going to be inept enough to ask that question on direct. Well, I mean, they sort of promised that they were going to ask that question in both their opening statements when they said Bob Durst didn't kill Susan Berman and he doesn't know who did. And so whether it was smart to ask it or not, it was almost promised that they would ask it. Well, I don't think it was promised, but even if it was, you still can't ask it. Ask it then like this. Bob, do you know who killed Susan? No. Now, I didn't ask Bob that identical question. So although that is circumstantially impeachable, it is not directly impeachable. Don't ask him the identical question that I asked him in New Orleans, where his response was, I would lie. Next, I guide Lewin to discuss some of the other areas that came up early in Dick DeGaren's direct examination of his client, Robert Durst. What I was going to ask you was about a few other things that came up during direct and just get your response in the moment as best as you can recall it. Sure. First of all, his description of the Peter Schwartz incident with his face hitting Bob's boot in some way. I mean, it's a typical Bob thing to say. I knew as soon as he said it that I was going to be able to use the Morris situation because they're in a struggle the same way. You know, I thought it was not planned by Bob. It's a typical kind of Bob move where, you know, he ad-libs something he hasn't thought about. I thought it came off very badly, and it was one of those things where it's a typical Bob maneuver where it's not I didn't actually – do the death was the bullet. You know, I mean, it's just typical Bob. His face must have hit my boot. So, yeah, I, I was pleasantly surprised by the stupidity of the remark. And then his bringing up this notion that Kathy enrolled in drug rehab at Lenox Hill Hospital. So, at the time, what I thought was absurd about it was that obviously, as I've said, it is an impossibility that in the middle of your fourth year of medical school while you're doing your rotations that you'd be able to attend drug rehab. It's impossible. Legally, logistically, it would never happen. So what I keyed on is that's the most absurd thing I've ever heard. Now, at the time that he said it, although I've gone through the medical records and the academic records very closely, I did not remember that Kathy had put Lenox Hill Hospital as her number one match. And the reason I didn't remember it was because in reading it, it didn't matter. What was important was she was going through the match, the letter, she wanted to be in New York City, et cetera. So Eugene Miata, a member of our team, he was in charge of the evidence. And he had just been reviewing the medical records looking for something and had just seen it. So when he hears it, he looks it up. He's the one who found it. I didn't realize that that's what Kathy had put down. So that's one, unlike the situation with the grandfather and the waved mommy or the Frisbee and Uno, where I myself knew it instantly, that one went right over my head. That's why, you know, we had 
such an effective team. Was there anything in Bob's recounting of Kathy's disappearance and his actions in the immediate aftermath of that that jumped out at you as ripe for attack? I mean, I attacked everything, as you can tell. So one thing that got some publicity was, well, he said that he saw Shoah, and Shoah didn't come out, and it was, you know, 12 hours, 14 hours long. I knew that he had, in fact, gone to see a Holocaust movie. It is my belief now that that movie was very likely Sophie's choice. So what was very important is that I never wanted to impeach Bob on things that he said which were not true, and especially those things which were not true and made him look bad. Because then the defense would say, see, Bob's not lying. Why would he lie to say this thing that makes him look bad? He just can't remember. So when that came out, I looked it up as well, saw when it was that the movie wasn't out yet. I stayed away from it because, again, I knew that I had a witness who had said he had gone to a Holocaust movie with Bob. And that didn't matter. I didn't call that witness because it didn't prove anything. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, the Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. Join us on our next installment as John Lewin and I continue our discussion of the testimony of the defendant, Robert Durst, specifically focusing on the direct examination of Durst by defense attorney Dick DeGaron. Also, in the event that you would like to revisit the sections of the trial that Lewin describes in this episode, check out our coverage of the early days of Dick DeGaron's direct examination of Durst in Season 2, Episodes 15 and 16 of this Jury Duty podcast. Also, if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You can find more information about this trial at CrimeStory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. The episode was co-produced, written, and edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. <laughs>